0: When I hear people say that you, you got to speak in tongues as a sign of you being filled with the Holy Spirit, I want to ask you, well, what did you say? If you spoke in tongues at the moment you were filled with the Holy Spirit, what did the interpreter say that you said? Was there an interpreter present? If not, then I don't think you did anything according to Scripture. Prescribe truth, we're giving you what the doctor ordered. Jamal Bandy, apologist, the Lord's servant. We are deserving, but Christ changed our mind frame. In a world full of errors, the only thing the doctor prescribes is truth. All right, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Prescribing Truth. I'm Jamal Bandy. I'm the one who seeks to distribute the truth that the doctor prescribes to the church and the world today. What I want to get into tonight is dealing with the purpose of tongues, the purpose of the gift of tongues and baptismal regeneration. What is it and is it biblical? Now I know to some of you who may listen to this or watching this on YouTube, it may seem redundant, but there are still a lot of people who are confused about this and those who. Um do not believe in baptism or regeneration still have a problem with defending the position that they hold to, and so I want to try to um, give some basics of what we can do when engaging someone who believes that in order to be saved, you must be baptized and also that and you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will show signs of speaking in tongues and show some errors within those thought processes all right? And so I don't want to uh take so long let's let's just jump into this. I want to look at the conversion of Paul. now when when it talks about the tongues, they, they say that these signs shall accompany you. When you are born again, it should be an evidence by you speaking in tongues. That's evidence. Yeah, you may bear fruit. You may have this love that you normally wouldn't have had. You may have been able to forgive where you normally wouldn't and be patient where you normally wouldn't and all this fruit of the spirit you may possess. But if you do not speak in tongues, then you do not truly have the spirit. And I want to deal with that. So first. I want to look at Paul. Let's look at Paul's conversion. I want to pull up scripture. If you have your Bibles, please turn in your Bibles with me. Or if you're familiar with the text, then please think on it with me. (laughs) As we look at Acts nine, we're going to look at the conversion of Paul. You know, what was it like? Because see, the thing is this, if you can find one case, at least one that this isn't true, then that means it's not necessary. And it also means that it's not the case that this is a sign, completely sign of you being born again, like for all times, you know, and that's the same thing with baptism and regeneration. If there's an instance where someone is saved prior to being baptized, then the whole argument falls apart. And, and that's just, that's just where it goes, you know, because we look for consistency, always looking for consistency. All right. So let's look at Acts 9. I'm going to pull up my app. Now this goes into a whole, uh, if we look at the whole chapter, starting verse one, it goes into how Saul would end up becoming Paul when the Lord confronted him. And I want to read some of this. Um, It's not my intentions to read this whole chapter, but um, I do want to look at a good bit of it because there's another, uh, we're going to look at Paul's account of his own conversion as well. So we're going to hear from his own words. So this is a narrative. We know Acts was written by Luke, so this is a narrative about Paul's conversion. We're going to hear from Paul's own words in Acts 26 a little bit later. All right, so Acts 9, it said, While he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now I want you to look at something here. What is the heart? What is the condition of Paul's heart? He's a Jew. You know, he's of the tribe of Benjamin, which he tells us in Corinthians. He's a he's a he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Jew. He's thinking he's doing the work of the Lord because these Christians are blaspheming. These Christian these Christians are saying that Jesus is the Christ, and Paul does not believe that. I want to think. I want you to think about that for a moment. In his heart, he does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay. This is important. All this is important. I'm going to bring this up later too. And so anyway, without going into all the details, it says that as he was going, the Lord stopped him and, he, and, and the, the Lord called out to him and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Now, I want to think about this for a moment. Saul is praying? Praying to who? Is he now believing in this Lord that called on him? Is he now believing in this Lord that called on him? Is is his heart now changed where now he wanted to rail threats against those who followed Jesus? Now he believes. Let's think about that for a moment. Just hold there. Hold there. And he says, verse 12, and Jesus continues. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain sight. So this this regaining of his sight will be a sign to him. He's seen a vision of this man who's going to lay his hands on him so that he can regain his sight. These are the words from Jesus, not a record, not a narrative of what Jesus said, but this is Jesus words that this is what he's coming for. Now we're going to hear something different from Ananias, but I want you to pay attention to something. Jesus himself said, he's coming to you. He's already praying. He's coming to you because he saw in a vision, there's going to be a man who's going to lay hands on him and he will regain his sight. All right. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Whoa, whoa wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's already chosen. That word reminds me of Election, but we're not going to get into that tonight. But that's that's we he said. He's chosen. Paul didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose Paul. He chosen. He's an instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now we go on, in verse seventeen. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said. Now these are words of Ananias. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some would take that. Some would take that and saying, oh, well, Paul just now received the spirit. No, because now he had his hands laid on. him." But what did Jesus say? He's coming so he may regain his sight. The fact that Paul was praying and now believing, I would argue. That the Holy Spirit was already in Saul, he was all, the Holy Spirit was already indwelling in him. The, the laying on of hands was a sign to him that he regained his sight. That's what it was for. Now these are words of Ananias that he said these things to Paul that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. But will we say that Ananias could actually see when the Spirit would enter Saul or Paul? No, because Jesus said himself in John chapter three that no one can see, no one can tell where the spirit goes, but we know the spirit has come. <laughs> we, we can know that. So anyway, my whole point of bringing up this is that after Paul gets uh, uh, these, his, his sight back, what happens? It says, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. So He rose and was baptized, but then it says, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. But we don't see nowhere about Paul speaking in tongues. Like this wasn't like, if speaking in tongues was a sure sign, was like supposed to be the sign that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then it would have been something that Paul would have did. It was something that Paul would have did. And, and I, I'm not even going into the, the fact that when he wrote in his writings, how he looked at tongues as something that wasn't as important as prophesying, as w- with speaking the truth of God's word. So, but here, he's not, speaking, he's not speaking in tongues as a sign. He goes and preaches. He immediately goes and preaches Jesus to the synagogues. He was going to persecute these Christians, bring them bound. But now he's going to teach Jesus. Something changed with Paul. His heart. His heart was changed. When was his heart changed? I would argue it's when Jesus came to him. Jesus came to him and did the work in him. He did the work in him. That's why he was praying. That's why he believed. So, so no. So here we have a, we have a clear sign, a clear one, a narrative, that this is the instance where someone... Even if you go with verse 18 saying that he was baptized or he, or after um, verse 17, I'm sorry, that he was, uh, that he would get that, uh, he was filled with the Holy spirit. Yet we don't see record of him speaking in tongues immediately. Now, Paul does mention that he did speak in tongues, but he never claimed it as being a sign of his conversion. Never. Matter of fact, his own testimony. And we're going to look at that. Acts um, 26. Now, the whole point of this is once again, if it's, if it's, always true that this is what it is, then it should be across the board. And because it's such an important event, you have a you have one who's going to persecute Christians and now going to seek to preach Christ. They're, it would think that would be significant for them to mention that he spoke in tongues because that was something that's supposed to happen. Now, his, verse 2 of Acts 26, Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that, according to the strictest party of our religious a religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul is laying out his heart here. This is how he felt about Christians. This is how he felt about those who was following this, this man named Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth. You know, he wanted to make them blaspheme. He was, he he was angry about how they believed. Then he says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday. O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying, saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goals. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, it's interesting that in his own testimony about what Jesus told him, notice that the sending of Paul, which he mentions himself in his own writings, Jesus didn't mention that I sent you to baptize everybody and that I sent you to make, to make sure they feel the Holy Spirit is speaking with tongues and neither did this happen to him at the moment. He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So that's we did. What did Paul do? After everything after that whole experience and notice he even he didn't even mention he didn't even mention that he went to Ananias to get his the hands laid on him to receive his sight because the most important thing was that his heart was changed that what he's doing going to preach the gospel while he was first persecuting Christians now he's going to preach Christ like that is the key that was the key you know so that so this is this is very gripping for me. It's like, how then, how then can we even use Paul as an example to say, hey, he's the one saying we should always speak in tongues, when clearly he didn't even do so immediately. That wasn't what he did immediately. Now, we have to ask the question then, well, what is the gift of tongues for, and what is the gift of tongues? What was it well, Acts 2 tells us I'm not even going to go into that right now. But if you read Acts 2, when that came, when that happened, when they spoke in tongues, they spoke in other languages that already existed. They were intelligible. They they could be translated from other people groups. That's what was going on in Acts 2. Now, Paul mentions something in Corinthians. He, he mentioned something in Corinthians 14 concerning tongues. I want to take us there. I want to give us that. And we're going to look at that and I'm going to take a break. But I want to I want us to look at that, the purpose of tongues. Now, I, we can argue. I'm willing to talk to someone. If you if you really believe that that tongues is some unintelligible language that we that no human on earth can understand, I'm willing to talk to you about it. But the scripture is consistent that the tongues are spoken in scripture, according to the Greek language, according to when we say the underlying Greek means just a language. A language. That you can understand and what paul mentions unknown tongues in scripture he's talking about tongues that people did not know not that they did not exist in the earth but that they did not know because there were various tongues in the earth i'm just i'm just throwing that out there for you guys all right but let's look at first corinthians 14 and we're gonna look at verse 21 22. now he says first one in the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people? And even then they will not listen to me says the Lord. Now that is a prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah 28 verse 11, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. And if you read the context of, of Isaiah 28, God is prophesying about a Messiah, the cornerstone of Israel. Now, what happened in Acts 2 when they received the tongues? What were they doing? The Bible says they was preaching. They were speaking the mysteries of God. And what is considered a mystery of God in Scripture? The gospel message. (laughs) The gospel. What were they doing? In other tongues, they was preaching about Christ to people. You know, and so when I hear people say that you got to speak in tongues as a sign of you being filled with the Holy Spirit, I want to ask you. Well, what did you say? If you spoke in tongues at the moment you were filled with the Holy Spirit, what did the interpreter say that you said? Was there an interpreter present? If not, then I don't think you did anything according to Scripture because that's what was supposed to happen if that was true. Because when they spoke in tongues in the, Old, in the New Testament, when they received these gifts, those tongues could be understood. They knew they were speaking gibberish. That's why they said they spoke in other tongues they knew those tongues were in existence in the earth. They knew that. All right. So to say that, Hey, well, this is what the tongues are, A, B, and C, and you gotta have, uh, you gotta have this evidence in order to be, uh, truly say that you have the Holy spirit is false. and should be dropped. It should be dropped, but let on that's verse 21. I didn't even read verse 22. So we see verse 21. That's what, the, that's what um is referring to. Isaiah 28. 1422 says, thus tongues. So notice how Paul says thus. So that means that whatever was said before is given a reason for what he's going to say now. So given that the law was written and it said these things, he says, thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. See, prophecy would encourage the believer. It would, it would encourage the believer, giving us what thus says the Lord, where tongues, even though you speak in other languages, what does that prophecy say? They still won't hear. They still won't understand. And that was, that's what he's talking about. It served as a witness. It served as a witness. And so when they were speaking in tongues, what was happening? Prophecy was being fulfilled. Prophecy was being fulfilled. So is there a need for tongues today in that way? No, it was already done. The gospel has spread. The good news has spread, and God is sovereign. Everyone whom God wants to hear this truth will hear it. He's sovereign over hearts. The Bible tells us many plans are in the mind of a man, but it's the Lord who orders his steps. That's scripture. All right. So, no tongues are not a sign of you being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us what the fruit. Of the spirit is the things that the believer should bear within themselves. Remember how Jesus said that you can you can't have a good tree, you can't have good fruit from a bad tree, and a bad fruit from a good tree. You can't, and you'll know them by the fruit that they bear. You'll know a tree by the fruit that it bears. So, and Jesus says you'll know them who are mine by the love they show one to another. So this is something that. We should know, like, you know, someone is filled with the Holy Spirit if they are bearing fruit, bearing fruit. And that fruit is not the size of their bank account. I got to say that because I know there are some charismatics who think that because somebody has a lot of money, they got fruit. No, it's not talking about that kind of fruit. It's talking about spiritual fruit, being able to love, being able to forgive, being able to have self control. And though we as humans don't do those things perfectly, we should be bearing fruit of those things. And then the motivation behind them is the Lord is Christ, not, not boasting in ourselves. All right. And so, and, so yeah, I want to, I want to dispel that. I want to dispel that. So, um, I hope that helps. That's just a small piece. I mean, there are plenty of areas we can look into about all this, but I just felt like that, you know, that is enough. That is sufficient for now. Um, at least, at least gives it open, leaves it open for people to, uh, make conversation, to communicate with me. if They would like to, and we can look at other scripture, but like I said, if it's not true for one, then it's not true for all either, you know, and, and if it is true for one, then it has to be true for all because that's the nature of truth. All right. So I'm going to switch gears real quick. I want to invite you guys to visit my website, prescribedtruth.com. Uh, from that website, you can visit the YouTube channel. You can see the podcasts that are on there as well. Also, if you like to donate a gift to this ministry, you can do so from there as well. And um, what else I have on there, Um, I have my mission statement, what I believe and all those things. If you want to know, hey, what all does Jamal hold to or Prescribed Truth is um, what they hold to, then you can look at that and see, Um, you know, just invite you to check it out. You know, let me know what you think. And um, yeah, and if you'd like to support me, you can do so by partnering with me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash prescribed truth. Um, right now, right now, just for only a dollar, you could join us on the discord and then we, we have chats on there. And also we have the, um, the after show hangout on there as well. And that's really cool. I really do enjoy that. Um, what else you can do with a dollar, get a shout out, unless you want to remain anonymous and just different things. Just check it out, check it out. The link is in the description. Uh, you you could check that out. Um, man. Um, is is growing. I'm thankful for the patrons I do have now. Five patrons. I'm excited. I know, like uh, some people may see that it's small, but I see it as big. Anytime anyone is willing to support you financially, it's a big deal because one, nobody has to, nobody has to. So I'm greatly appreciative for anyone who's willing to support me financially in that way, even if it's only for one time. I'm greatly appreciative, and um, and then two, <laughs> the fact that it's such a big deal. Is because, man, there are so many other things they could be doing. They could be doing with their money, you know, and, it's, and it shows that somebody actually, you know, believes in what's going on here that they actually want to support it in that way. So I, I don't take it as, I don't take it lightly. I don't. And so I just want you to know from the bottom of my heart, thank you for those who are patrons. And if you're not able to, I understand. And please continue to keep me in prayers. I continue this work. Now on to the next thing. I want to talk to you guys About this whole issue of baptismal regeneration. Man, why, 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 why are people still putting out that you must be baptized in order to be saved? See, I think like this in any argument we use for Christianity, it has to be consistent. What I love about Christianity is that it is logically consistent, it can stand against scrutiny all right if somebody comes to ask a question by god's grace i should be able to give an answer and if i can't give an answer the word has an answer and if the word is silent on it well, then it's something that the lord just didn't want us to know (laughs) but everything that we need to know pertaining to life and godliness is in the scriptures it's there all right so now, once again, just like with tongues, is baptism necessary for salvation? If it's not necessary for one, then it's not necessary for all. But if it is necessary for one, then it's necessary for all. The thing that that bugs me with this is that people, what they do, and I don't think they realize it, is that they actually begin to boast in their works. And, and, and this kind of demonstrated in a debate that I had recently where an individual, as I asked him a question concerning a certain type of people, Uh, what would happen to them if they didn't get baptized, his response was, well, that's their fault. They should have gotten baptized before said events happened. Well, at least that didn't happen with me. You know, and he didn't say the least happened that happened with me part, but he his testimony is that he was baptized. So he's covered Whereas somebody else, if they did, if they wasted their life, if they spent their life doing whatever, and they end up in a hospital bed or where the case may be, and they didn't get baptized, even though they may have heard the Holy, the, um, the gospel and they may have been filled with the spirit, but if they didn't get baptized then there's no way that they're saved and it's their fault. So in that you are saying you are boasting in your works. You're boasting in the fact that you made the cognitive decision to go and get baptized anyway, without going on a tangent, I just want to throw that out there. Now, the thing I want to bring up is this, what is salvation? What does scripture tell us about being saved? The nature of being saved. What does scripture say? Well, the scriptures tell us that, especially Jesus himself in John 3, he says that unless you are born again, you will in no wise see the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, period. No ifs, ands, buts about it. You must be born again. Now, what people like to do is they like to use that portion of scripture where then Jesus says, unless you're born of the water and of the spirit. But. The key that we have to look at is in the context, the whole context is talking about being born again. This is what being born again is. So now if you, if you use baptism as saying that that's what the water is in the scripture, then you have to say that being baptized is a part of being born again, that you're not born again until you've been baptized. Well, scripture tells us that when we're born again, we are made new, new heart, new desires. That's what scripture tells us. So that means that we can't have the new heart or new desires unless we've been baptized as well as received the spirit. You see what I'm saying? And this is the problem that they run into. Now they love to get over the fact or try to look over the fact that that portion of the scripture where Jesus says that you're born of the water and of the spirit is referring to Ezekiel 36. That's what it's referring to Ezekiel 36 where God says, I will wash you with water and you will be clean. Now, if God is going to wash you with water himself, and they love to say that baptism is a work of God and not of man. If God is going to wash you with water himself, he doesn't need you to go to a pool. Does, does, does did God need somebody to, somebody to start a fire for him to send fire? No. God spoke everything. The world, ha- as it exists, did God need water to already exist? before lands came out of it, before sea creatures were in it. No, it came from him. God, if wanted to wash you literally with water, water could appear and wash you, but that wasn't what he was speaking of. The being clean was talking about us being made new. Our desires changed where we used to hate God. Now we love him. And that brings me to want to bring up Paul. So we see in Paul's conversion, how he talked about how he hated Christians. He was ready to persecute them. He even signed off and gave his vote for some to be killed. His own testimony. But yet something changed about Paul. His heart was changed. His heart was changed. He was praying to Jesus whom he first hated. Now he's praying to him, believing him. Then goes to Ananias, gets his sight, and then he's baptized then he was baptized but his heart was changed how is that possible how could he have had the full effect of what being born again is what it would look like if he ain't yet been baptized that don't make sense because it's not necessary we go to acts 11 peter gives a recount of what happened in acts 10 with the gentiles and what happened As he was preaching the gospel, they believed they were filled with the spirit. And then Peter says, well, who will refuse them to be baptized? Though these who believe when who received the spirit, just like we did, just like we did at Pentecost. That's what Peter brings up. So that means they received the same power that happened at Pentecost. Now, I don't know about you all. But I don't remember in Acts 2, when everybody was filled with the Spirit then, that everybody rushed and got baptized at that moment. No, it doesn't even tell us that. We know they, they, we know they received the Holy Spirit. They began to prophesy in tongues to, to the people who could hear. And Peter proclaimed the gospel to those who were questioning what was going on. But we don't see that these people received the Spirit and then were baptized or was baptized and received the Spirit. They were there waiting. They were there waiting. So the same thing happened to the Gentiles in Acts 10. And Peter explains it further in Acts 11. And so we see here that people who are saved are changed prior to being baptized. Now, the last conversation I had with a gentleman who, who believed that you had to be baptized in order to be saved, period. Well, there's the inc- there came an inconsistency. He was saying say that you can have the spirit and still not be saved. Well, that would go against Scripture because it, uh, uh, Ephesians 2 says we were sealed by the Spirit, sealed by the Spirit of our inheritance, of our inheritance. How do you have an inheritance if you're not yet a son? Because Scripture says we are adopted. We are adopted. And how are then are we sons? How are we sons if we aren't truly saved? We're not. But see, if we have an inheritance, which the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that inheritance, then we are sons and children of God. So therefore, we are saved once we're filled with the Holy Spirit. See, I love how Scripture doesn't give us any gray area. There's no in between. Either you're saved or you're unsaved. Either you're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. Look what God told. Um, look what God told Paul. He said, I, in Paul's own confession about his own testimony, he said that Jesus told him that, hey, I sent you that you may go and preach and you may open their eyes and that they will come from the power of Satan to God. There's no gray area. He didn't say they come from the power of Satan, hanging limbo till they get baptized and they come to God. They go from one power to the other. They are bound to one, and then we're going to make them bound to another. They're bound to sin. We're going to be bound to Christ. It's only it's only one or the other. There's no in between. So if you're a child of God and yet have an inheritance and seal with the spirit, you are born again. You are saved apart from baptism. But now I ask the question, if somebody is in a hospital bed, they have cancer, sick, they still have life in their bodies because the Bible tells us, That time and chance happens to all men. And the Bible tells us that that until we die, there's an opportunity for repentance. Now, I do believe in election. So I believe that before a person dies, if they are meant to truly be Christ and be his, they will come to know him. They will. They will be saved. So that aside, if somebody's in that hospital bed, cancer patient, you know, because the guys that usually hold the position of baptismal regeneration, they don't believe in election. So I kind of hold their feet to the fire with this. And so I want to pose the question. And maybe you guys who listen to this make an answer to this. But if someone is on their deathbed, still got life in their bodies, they are cognitive, they can understand, they can speak. And you come and you preach Christ to them. You preach Christ to them. They believe. Their heart has changed. But how are you going to baptize them? They're in the hospital bed. They can't get up. They're at a state where they can't get up. They can't be uh, carried off into a pool somewhere and be dumped because once again, these same people, they believe that baptism also has to be by immersion. That means they can't just sprinkle them. They have to immerse them. And so they can't have this happen. Are they now lost? Is it now worthless to preach to those, to proclaim Christ to those who are in the nursing homes who can't get to a pool? Is it? Are they, is it too late? See, the only logical answer then is yeah. If you hold that position, then the logical answer is yes. It's too late for them. They should have gotten baptized. They should have did like I did and got baptized in Jesus name. And I think that's why Paul said in Ephesians 2, that salvation is a gift of God, a gift. You didn't do anything to get it. It's a gift, a gift of God so that no one can boast. No one can boast. You can't boast in what you did. The beautiful thing about the Lord allowing Paul to say that this is a gift is that you don't work for gifts. (laughs) You're giving gifts. You're just giving a gift. If if I come to my wife on on our anniversary and I want to give her a gift, I'm giving her a gift. I'm not telling her, hey, I got this gift for you, but in order for you to receive it, I need you to do these things here and I'm going to give it to you. All right. Okay. Huh? Huh? Have that gift. No, no man would do that. I hope, I hope no man would do that. <laughs> That's bogus. No, you give a gift because you're giving the gift and they don't earn the gift. They're just gifted the gift. <laughs> I'm going to love this word gift. By the end of the day, somebody going to comment the gift, the gift, the gift. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it, but it's given. And it's by grace you have been saved. Grace. It's like, it's like God just like double-stepped that because it's by grace. It doesn't mean it's unmerited. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to get it. And it's a free gift of God. That means you didn't, you couldn't pay, you couldn't purchase it. You couldn't do anything to get it, but it's given to you. It's a gift, your salvation. There are also Kind of goes into what Jesus said about the movement of the spirit, that the spirit moves according to how he wills. That's that's the spirit. Like, you don't do anything. You can't see when the spirit is coming. You can't say, no, spirit, I don't want you in me, or spirit, come to me. The spirit's going to come because God chooses. Just like Jesus said, Paul was a chosen vessel of his. Paul didn't choose to follow Christ. Jesus chose Paul, and therefore Paul followed. Why? Because his heart was changed. His heart was changed. The Bible says we are saved. We are saved in the same way in which Abraham was saved, the same way. And I believe scripture witness says that. I believe it. So now this whole conversation can go in a lot of different places. And I think the easiest way to handle this, which actually is not as easy, it takes a lot of time, is to actually deal with a few things. One, who is God? We got to start with God. Who is God? All right. Is God sovereign? And if he is sovereign, is he completely sovereign or partially sovereign? Then some people argue that God purposely made himself less sovereign. He gave himself limits. I would like to see that as scripture. Um, But we have to think about that Then the nature of man. What is the nature of man? You know, is man is man naturally good or naturally wicked? Which one? And if he's naturally good, then, whoa, where did he? Where does he ever find the point to sin? Because good is without sin. But if he's naturally wicked, how in the world does he find the, the, the goals to do anything good? And normally we're talking about good being morally perfect. And if we're talking about being morally perfect, that means we're doing it for the right reasons. That means, we, that means good things are done with right motivations. And those right motivations has to be to the glory of God. That's what scripture says. So, a person may do good things, but if it's not to the glory of God, then their their deeds are worthless. all right, so, yeah, we have to look at that. think about all those things, and so now, for those who hold to baptismal regeneration, I ask a question. I ask a question: If someone is on their deathbed, but yet they still have life in them, can yet think and respond. Do you not preach the gospel to him because they can't be baptized? Is that the case? And if you say yes, because they can believe, then we'll praise God. You you actually believe that baptism isn't necessary for salvation. But if you say, no, I won't go preach to them because, you know, they can't get baptized. And therefore, it's no use. But then there lies the, the extreme flaw in your understanding of what scripture teaches. And I would ask you and urge you to repent of that false gospel and believe the true gospel that scripture lays out. All right. So I hope that was helpful. I really thank you for joining me on this episode of the Prescribing Truth Podcast. Please join me next week, Wednesday. I recorded live on YouTube, and I have them uploaded Thursday mornings for you guys. But Wednesday evenings at 9 p.m., join me next next week for another episode of Prescribing Truth. Thank you once again for joining me. God bless. Oh, and remember, I got to make sure I tell you this. Remember that though this world is full of errors. The only thing that the doctor prescribes is truth. Blessings. Prescribe truth. We're giving you what the doctor ordered. Jamal Bandy, apologist, the Lord's servant. We deserving but Christ changed our mind frame. In a world full of errors, the only thing the doctor prescribes is truth.